Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is economist Nate Hilger. Nate earned his PhD in economics at Harvard University, was a professor at Brown University, advised presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, uh, sorry, it's been too long since the campaign, Pete Buttigieg on early childhood policy, and is currently working as a data scientist in Silicon Valley. His research specialty is on education and other aspects of social mobility, and today we're going to talk about his new book on the topic called The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. It's a great book, but if you don't believe me, you can ask Jim Heckman or Raj Chetty, uh, two prominent economists who've both given it glowing endorsements. Nate, welcome. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Um, So why don't we plunge right in? Um, So... I took uh, two main messages from the book. Um, One is that the problem of inequality in our society comes primarily uh, as a consequence of inequality of skill development in children. And then secondly, that the solution to this inequality, um, somewhat more surprisingly, I think, is, is not to fix the schools and not to say parents should step up and fill in the gap and here's what parents should do. Um, so let's go through each of those and have you uh, explain what you think uh, is sort of the, the way forward. So, so to start off, um, where does inequality come from in America? Yeah. Um, I focus primarily on inequality by class and race, not all of the inequality in our country. And I think a major source of the inequality by class and race, kids who grow up rich versus kids who grow up poor kids who grow up white versus kids who grow up in disadvantaged minority families come from disadvantages in access to skill development opportunities in childhood. And there are other kinds of inequality. For example, the runaway income growth among the top 1%, you know, the, the millionaires and billionaires. I think that's a more complicated story about changes in technology over time. But for what, what seemed to me the most disturbing and kind of un-American dimensions of inequality, I do think equalizing access to skill development in childhood is really the key to getting to reducing and even potentially eliminating those income gaps um, that, are, that are so painful to see and experience if you're coming from these disadvantaged families and also so inefficient for our society in terms of wasting talent and productivity. Right. So yeah, so your book's not about why I don't get to be Jeff Bezos. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad to hear it's not about my lack of skills, because um, uh, sometimes I feel that way. But, uh, but really, yeah, why sort of in, you know, the, the, the rest of us uh, in the 99%, what are, what are the differences that, that put you in the, in the top half versus the bottom half? Um, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, a really concrete way to think about it is why do college graduates in America today earn over the course of their careers, you know, over a million dollars more than, than people who don't get college degrees. 
that's crazy. That is just like the market screaming at us that we need more people with these kinds of skills. And the fact that our society isn't set up to solve that problem and rapidly respond with an increase in the supply of college graduates or people with those kinds of skills through other means, you know, apprenticeships or, or boot camps. That means to me that there's something really wrong with our skill development system, which particularly disadvantages lower income and, and minority kids. Well, okay. Well, actually, why don't we go on that just because I, you know, in, in other parts of the discourse, you hear other people sort of making it sound like college is this big scam, right? We're, everyone's being tricked into going to college and taking on this debt and it's such a burden on them. And, you know, at least implicitly, it sounds like people think they'd be better off not having gone to college. Um, so, so I know that's not the main thrust of your book, but, uh, but tell us about that. So is college actually a really good investment? College is a really good investment still. I would encourage people to look at their public community colleges rather than the heavily marketed for-profit colleges, for sure. But in terms of going to a state college, going to a reputable um, university, that is still a tremendous economic investment that families can make in their children and that people can make in their own careers and lives. And yes, there are exceptions that people talk about. That's true for every investment that you can make. But the average outcomes for people with college degrees today even including the interest payments on the debt are very high. Okay. So, um, so what, what is the, uh, you know, you mentioned skills development. So, so tell us about what, what evidence we have. So, so college is one, obviously people, so you're saying people who go to college versus not are earning, you know, that's worth basically a million dollars getting into and finishing college. Um, and what, what are the other sort of skills based, um, inequalities and how do we, um, how do we have evidence for those? Yeah, I mean, looking at, in, in addition to just going to college, of course, college quality matters. And if rich kids and poor kids get into the same college, there's a wonderful study by by Raj Chetty and, and co-authors who find that if rich and poor kids get into the same college, they wind up, that, that experience, that shared experience winds up closing about 80% of the rich-poor income gap. So that's one great piece of evidence that's very reassuring that if poor kids get the right kinds of opportunities, then they are set on a very good economic trajectory. It's not that something about being poor rules out the possibility of getting the, the lucrative good jobs that come with that kind of college degree. Another really powerful piece of evidence is the history of early learning opportunities. In America, there's really two parts of childhood that are radically unequal. And they happen before and after our K-12 school system. And there's also, you know, during the K-12 ages, there's also after school and summer programs, which are also radically unequal times. But the really extended periods of time are zero to five before free kindergarten is available. And then after high school graduation, when college once again becomes the private responsibility of families to navigate and pay for. And just like there's great evidence that getting the right kinds of college opportunities can close class-based um, career and income gaps, there's really good evidence that closing these early childhood opportunity gaps can also help kids get the skills they need to um, get on a better trajectory in school and um, earn a lot more money through, through higher productivity in adulthood later in their careers. 
Okay, so why don't you, why don't you tell us about um, some of the more uh, the stronger evidence and studies that have been done in this area? Um, you know, we're not we're are we running experiments on children, like throwing them into some of them into pulling some of them out of school, putting some of them into this, into school? How how are we managing that? We are running experiments on children, but it's a lot less scary than it sounds. Um, sounds pretty sinister, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's a really funny thing. I think people have this very understandable knee-jerk negative reaction to the idea of running experiments on children, but they also have this very understandable knee-jerk reaction to giving children things that have never been tested before and that we don't understand if they work or not. And those two knee-jerk reactions are kind of in flat contradiction with each other. So there have been these experiments historically. Um, Two of the most famous ones are the Perry Preschool Program and the ABC Darien Program, both of which gave a small group of lower income kids access to excellent early learning opportunities. And both of which found, you know, through, they were randomized controlled trials, just like the kinds of clinical trials we use to understand if new pharmaceuticals solve the problems that they claim to solve. And these studies occurred many decades ago, and they found huge short-term and long-term benefits for lower income children. Some people like to criticize these studies because they were quite small. There were only 50, 50 kids in the treatment group and 50 kids in the random control, control group. And by the way, I should mention that the people who did these studies, they, at least for ABC Darien, um, they were very careful to provide some valuable services to the control group as well so that those kids also benefited from participating in the experiment. Um, but to go back to the issue of the reason why some people don't take this evidence as seriously is because they think these experiments were small. They happened a long time ago. They happened in just a couple places. Um, Perry was in Ypsilanti, Michigan. ABC Darien was in um, North Carolina and Chapel Hill. But there has, in the book, I talk about this extraordinary follow-up experiment called the Infant Health and Development Program, which replicated the child learning environment provided by ABC Darien in eight diverse cities around the United States and found exactly the same massive short-term benefits in seven of those eight places. And we can't quite figure out exactly what happened in that eighth place, but getting a perfect replication in seven out of eight diverse, complicated local contexts around America is really sensational. And this project I think is underappreciated. Follow on later evaluations of this study have found that the impacts were so large that they could close almost all of the cognitive skill development gap between rich kids and poor kids in early childhood. So to me, this is just this enormous opportunity to solve one of the most deep, one of the deepest, most entrenched, most destructive problems in our country. And the solution is sitting right in front of us. It has been shown and replicated, and we're not really paying close attention to it. And so that's just some of the evidence that I talk about in the book. The origins of that infant health and development program are astounding. It was kind of masterminded by this visionary woman named Ruby Hearn um, for really interesting reasons. And since that project in the 1980s, there have been many other studies looking at Head Start, looking at public preschool programs that also find that better early learning opportunities tend to be very powerful levers for equalizing human skill development and later, um, you know, later economic outcomes. So why do you think we aren't all uh, mobilizing to say, you know, let's, let's give this to everyone? 
Well, there is a lot of public support for solving this aspect of the skill development opportunity gap in early childhood. About 80 to 90% of Americans support the idea that there should be equal access to high quality early learning environments, high quality childcare, high quality preschool. It's a very, it has a lot of bipartisan grassroots support among voters. The reason why we're not doing it, I think it's because children and families are not very well organized in America is one reason. You know, I talk about how people who are over 65 have an American association of retired people with 40 million dues paying bipartisan members, whereas kids and parents they don't have anything like that. The closest analog for parents is the national PTA, which is the only really mass membership, nonpartisan organization seeking to represent the interests of families. But the national PTA is kind of this outmoded organization. It's a wonderful organization, but it's kind of stuck in its you know, older strategy to really focus on the school years when I think there really needs to be an organization that starts when parents are getting pregnant and having babies and changing setting up habits and patterns for their lifestyle and are really plugged into the network of pediatricians and OBGYNs who could be helping to recruit for this kind of advocacy organization. So there's a lack of political organization. The big deep reason is that kids don't vote. You know, kids really need a lot of public support to to live up to their potential and to contribute fully later in life, but kids don't vote. And so they're not able to hold politicians accountable. And the parents who come close who, who are the people in society closest to representing children politically, they struggle to vote because the parents are psychotically busy and we don't make it very easy to vote in America. And that disproportionately harms people who are busy and who move a lot and have to re-register their, their voting status every couple of years and people who don't have a lot of money and can't easily take time off from their work. So I think there's just a very tragic political imbalance in our country that is resulting in inadequate attention to giving all kids the opportunity they need to really thrive and, and contribute in adulthood. Yeah, I've noticed even, um, you know, voting is one element. And then at the local level, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big element of showing up for various kinds of public meetings, you know, the school board meeting or local government meetings. And, you know, my wife and I are always, rem- and I are always remarking, you know, we have, we have three little kids and we want to represent their interests, but there's like, there's no good time of day, right? Because we both work. So a daytime time doesn't work, but then you say, oh, okay, well, why don't you come tell us what your toddler needs between seven and 9 PM on a Tuesday night? You know, that's not exactly a good time too. like, we, you know, are we going to hire a babysitter or, you know, whatever else to, to cover the kids during that period while we take off to go and wait in line to, to speak at the podium and give our, our two minutes of public comment. But, but, you know, what I see is that that two minutes of public comment, you know, getting, getting a bunch of people lined up to do that is huge. You know, the, the teachers union is very effective in getting, you know, representing the interests of the teachers because uh, they can, you know, if they want to, whatever they want to do, they can get 40 people to show up and, you know, one after the other attest to how important whatever policy issue is they care about matters. And that I think both as a, you know, I think just psychologically, obviously, as a policymaker, if you see all those people coming and telling you something's important, you're likely to believe it's important, you know, uh, re- regardless of how representative they are. And also you feel like they've shown that they care about it. But yeah, that, that systematically kind of biases against uh, parents having a voice. Definitely. Yeah. The, I think maybe, maybe there could be a role for technology to improve things a little bit here, you know, to make it 
so that parents can contribute in more democratic forums like local local meetings you know asynchronously you know like maybe i think it's very hard for parents to plan ahead and commit to things because they just have to orchestrate so many things to to in terms of childcare so maybe if there were maybe a district or locality could experiment with letting parents record something ahead of time and play the recordings live as if the parent were speaking there. there I, I don't know. That's just one idea, but I strongly agree with you that anything that requires stepping out, putting your life on hold and going to a specific place at a specific time is really going to disadvantage parents, especially parents of younger kids. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, I mean, you know, uh, it's, and I think probably also poorer parents, you know, I mean, middle-class or middle-class parents, you know, can, can probably afford a babysitter or whatever, um, or, you know, or maybe they can afford to have one parent working and one parent, at least in their early years, maybe taking a few years off to, to focus on the kids. Um, but you know, in, in working class families, no one, no one's going to be taking a bunch of time off that way. And so, uh, it becomes even harder for them to, to be represented properly. Yeah, for sure. But I have to say, gosh, it's so hard for all parents. Like, uh, my wife and I are very fortunate to have reasonably flexible, decently paying jobs. And the idea that we would hire a babysitter on a weeknight when we're both very tired from working and use that opportunity to go to a city hall meeting and sit through all kinds of rigmarole just to give a two minute speech. We're very politically engaged people with all kinds of, you know, intellectual preferences and ideological preferences. But even for us, that, that's not, we'd, we'd rather take that time to go to a restaurant or watch a movie together and relax a little bit. We're just, we have a two-year-old at home and we feel like we're going nonstop with work or watching him. So political participation, even for us is just a tough proposition right now. Yeah. So um, anyway, so I actually mentioned, I was talking about schools and, you know, you, you've, you've said that there's a strong case that preschool is very important. Um, and in fact, you, you kind of go further and say that schools are sort of fixing schools are not the answer. And actually schools, I guess I would summarize your argument and you can correct me as sort of saying schools are basically okay. Like even you're, I think you're saying even like the difference between the bad schools and the good schools, there's differences, but it's not as important as we think. So, so tell, tell me more about that. There's certainly correct me if I've said it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's basically right. I'd make a subtle modification to what you said. There certainly is a vary, a lot of variation in school quality, but it doesn't line up with class and race in the way that many people think. It's not like lower income kids go to uniformly really bad schools and higher income kids go to uniformly good schools. It's a lot messier than that. What I really point out in the book is that I think we just are sometimes the, the difference between the inequalities that we see at school between kids and the inequalities we see at home are so large that it's we're often blind to them because it just it's almost impossible to make the comparison. For example, we take for granted that all kids in America today pretty much have college graduate teachers. Only one in three American adults has a college degree. So it's remarkable that kids all get to learn from this relatively elite group of adults when they're at school. And there's there are not differences in class size or spending per student if you include local and state and federal funding between rich kids and poor kids in America today, when they're at school in that 10% of childhood that they're at school, rich kids and poor kids have 
college graduate, college educated teachers in about 20 person classrooms getting about, you know, $13,000 a year of public funds allocated to their, their growth. And compare that to the 90% of time that kids spend at home. It's another world. And it's, you know, you look at the, the enrichment spending of higher income parents versus lower income parents on things like tutoring and counseling and books and computers for rich kids, that spending is about 16 times higher than it is for poor kids. It's 1600% of the spending that poor kids get. If you look at the top and the bottom income quintiles, parental income quintiles. So it's just the, the inequalities at home are so big. I think we kind of forget about them almost when we fixate on the inequalities at school. There are some inequalities at school in the sense that lower, lower income kids, schools that serve predominantly lower income kids, they have a greater challenge on their hands because those kids are not able to get all the tutoring and counseling and mental health and, and healthcare at home that higher income kids get. And a lot of lower income kids also are more likely to grow up in one parent families. So they're not getting enough as much um, adult support at home and they're more likely to have uh, exposure to mental health problems and incarceration and other kinds of traumatic experiences at home. And so that just makes it more difficult to teach because we place so much responsibility on parents in our society that pretty much guarantees that the job at a low income school is a lot more challenging than the job at a school serving predominantly higher income kids. And that causes lower income schools to have more trouble recruiting and retaining um, the best teachers. So that results in some quality gaps by across schools, but it's still honestly minuscule compared to the radical, the radical inequalities that kids experience in their learning environments in that 90% of time that they spend outside of public schools. Yeah. Tell me the, tell me about the 90%. Give us the breakdown on that. Cause you, you, you emphasize that a lot and uh, definitely like actually you know, meant to sit down with a piece of scrap paper and sort of sort it out for myself. But like, so walk, walk me through it. You're saying 90% of the, the time from, uh, cause you know, I think of like my kids school days now, it's like, I rush through breakfast, then, you know, I get them to school and they're at school most of the day. Then they come back home at like, you know, they're back home at three and that's a few hours and then it's dinner and shower and, you know, homework and, uh, and go to bed. It doesn't seem like they're, you know, it doesn't seem like 90% of the time they're at home. Yeah. That was really surprising to me too. It was kind of, um, I remember doing my own calculation on a piece of paper and having to quadruple check it because it just didn't make sense to me. But here's where that comes from. School only starts at age five in America in terms of free, free access to public school. Then school is only in session half of all days each year because there's summer breaks, winter breaks, spring breaks, and weekends and all kinds of professional development days. So that means only one in two days of the calendar are actual school days. And then when on those days, when schools are in session, kids are only at the school around a third of, of the hours in the day. So when you add that up, it's about 10% of all the hours that kids have available to them to build skills from birth through age 18. And I don't know if you're, I don't know if this is your next question, but a lot of people say, well, why are you counting sleep in that calculation? Like sure, kids sleep eight hours a night at home. I think that's a really interesting reaction. I don't know. I'm curious. Were you thinking that? Well, I read your book, so I did see that that came up and, and I was surprised that you were counting, that you were counting sleep hours. Cause you know, there's, there's some, 
uh, wiggle room on the margins. And, you know, but, but, but yeah, that does. And even when I narrated it before, I was sort of like thinking, you know, because obviously I'm, I couldn't send kids to any, I'm not going to send them to a school, you know, at midnight. So that's, that's kind of seems like it's kind of off the table anyway. So, yeah. So why do you include that? Yeah. I think it's important to include that because there are large documented differences in the quality of sleep that kids experience between rich family, you know, across economic class backgrounds. And the reasons for that are really clear. I mean, there are more noises. There is less privacy. If you have a smaller house in a neighborhood that has more car alarms and disruptions, and in some cases, gunshots, there are, um, there are, you're more likely to have problems with heat and air conditioning. If you're in a low income family, you're more likely to have problems with pests, you know, cockroaches and rats and, and bed bugs in a low income, uh, in low income neighborhoods. And all of this adds up to lower quality sleep and sleep is really important for the development of, um, child cognitive functioning. It makes sure kids, it's important to how kids show up at school. It's important to emotional regulation. So I think the idea, I think in, in the back of people's minds, people think maybe the bedroom is like a place of equality, but I, that is not the case. Unfortunately, I myself spent one year living in a neighborhood in, um, Brooklyn after college that was a, a lower income neighborhood. And I was sharing an apartment with a friend and it was the worst sleep I've ever had in my life. I was, you know, I was fortunate to grow up in a middle-class suburban neighborhood and that was probably the lowest income neighborhood that I've lived in with the, the highest crime, lowest income neighborhood I've lived in. And, um, you know, there were gunshots. There was a subway that was real close to my house. The car alarm situation was insane. We'd wake, we'd wake up multiple times a night from car alarms going off because people were so afraid of having their property stolen that they had to install alarms. And we had major bed bug infestations that made it impossible to sleep. And all this added up to really a, a higher level of stress, I would imagine for that year. I mean, I was like after college and kind of crazy for a number of other reasons, but I'm sure the sleep thing didn't help. And it really gave me some empathy for the idea that time in a bedroom at night is not equal just because allegedly we're all asleep. Okay. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. So it's a source of inequality, but, you know, we can, we all agree that kids should be in school during the day. And I think, you know, many, although not a hundred percent of parents would agree that we'd love to have, you know, if we felt like their time was being well spent, we wouldn't mind if they had a few more hours of childcare. So, you know, they could just show up ready for dinner and like, you know, some, some family time reading or watching TV or whatever we want to do before bed. Um, but I don't think, you know, you're starting to sound like you're going to like take our kids away from us and put them in boarding school, which oh, geez, uh, yeah. I don't think we can afford. And I don't think, I don't think we want. So, no. so what's, um, you know, yes, you know, this 90% of time, uh, matters a lot, but, um, yeah. So how does, how does this come back around to like a, a, a doable policy prescription? Yeah. I think the, the answer to that is, is doing more to make sure that neighborhoods are less unequal making you know, anything that makes neighborhoods less unequal in terms of crime in terms of making sure families have what they need for a good temperature control. And, you know, a, a one reasonable response to this would be some income support programs to make sure that parents can provide a comfortable, safe, relaxing environment for their children 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this does come, come around your point about school. I mean, I do see, you know, vast differences, even, you know, within my school district here in San Francisco in terms of the, you know, the, the safety of the neighborhood, the, 
you know, extent to which most kids do or don't show up for school on a given day, um, you know, the kinds of disruptions that happen in the classroom. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've also, uh, you know, seen studies that suggest that actually really, you know, I also, I know lots of middle, you know, middle-class educated, middle-class parents obsess about like which, which school to send their kids to. And they look at all these indicators and, you know, test scores or, you know, even college placements and things like that. And, and I'm always, you know, in the position of telling them, you know, you realize 90% of that is just like, you take a kid from, you know, a family with uh, two parents who, you know, went to grad school there, you could probably put them anywhere and they're going to be fine. So like, there is this element where, and I guess that just kind of reflects what you're saying. It's like, because it's not just that they were born, you know, they're born lucky, but like also they're after birth, everything else, you know, they're going to have all this enrichment. They're going to have parents who are obsessing about their grades and talk to them about like, oh, you know, why are you having trouble with quadratic formula? Let's, uh, let's walk through that together and, you know, paying for the, paying for the music lessons or whatever else. Um, so yeah, so I could see, see where that comes in. Um, and, and you've provided a lot of uh, evidence for why, uh, you know, uh, especially early intervention works well. I have heard um, from some of the studies kind of the, and, I, and I'm not totally up to date on this, but like assuming I've heard it, maybe other people have heard it, that like a lot of these uh, interventions kind of attenuate fairly rapidly. Like, okay, you can do something and it helps for like two or three years, but then kind of eight years later, you know, there's not really a measurable difference. So so how how up to date is the evidence on that? And, and how would you respond if it's if it's still a concern? Yeah. That's been a wonderful, fascinating finding in research over the last 10, 20 years is that, yes, in a lot of these education interventions, there are big short-term impacts in terms of test scores, but they fade out. That's the term, fade out. They fade out by two or three years later, sometimes even one year later. Evidence increasingly shows that these fade-out effects do not predict a lack of long-term impacts. And the leading reason for that, which seems kind of puzzling to a lot of people and has really caused a lot of premature surrender and premature declarations that programs like Head Start failed, people think the reason for that is probably that these programs benefit kids. They help them in social, emotional, physical, behavioral ways that show up briefly on higher test scores, for example, but then don't really play into your test scores per se in future years, but they do stick with the kid and they help the kid grow and ultimately find better jobs or better entrepreneurship opportunities later in life. Hmm. So I don't know, that sounds like something I'd want to believe if I were like, you know, the pitch man for for, for this program, but well, like, you know, you I'm, I'm an economist, right? If you can't measure it for me, or if the thing that most directly measures what you say you're trying to intervene on uh, doesn't seem to get better, then that seems like it's a worry. Well, we did in a, one of the biggest studies here is one that I co-authored with a bunch of other people. And it showed, it was studying the Tennessee Star Kindergarten Project. And it found that being assigned to a higher quality kindergarten teacher at age five improved your test scores and it also improved your behavioral outcomes and the test score impact faded out and the the behavioral outcomes did not fade out as much they faded out a little bit but they were still there several years later when the test score bump had faded and in this study we were able to link up the kids to their income records almost 30 years later and we found that the initial short-term increase in test scores was really the best predictor of the large 
impact, the large positive impact on these kids' earnings later in adulthood. So this is just such strong evidence that it, it kind of should force people to rethink their views on the fit, you know, assuming that a program has failed just because its short-term benefits didn't persist in our very, you know, we should admit our measures of skill are very narrow. These test scores are a very small part of what we appreciate in our colleagues and our friends in terms of what makes people really powerful and productive and interesting and charismatic and creative and visionary. So maybe we just have to be a little more humble about what we're really measuring in these instruments in the short run. Mm -hmm. I was thinking you, uh, another, just as trying this out in my head, but um, another metaphor that might be useful here is to think about like, if I gave kids like two years of baseball training camp from age six to eight, and then came back and, and like test and then like put them back in front of TV and video games for 10 years and then came back and tried to measure their baseball abilities. Like they probably wouldn't be good and they probably wouldn't be phys physically fit. So like, you know, part of it is just that you can't just like do a little thing and then, you know, think that bump is going to last forever, but still, you know, you know, if you do want your kid to be a great baseball player, not that that's my priority at all, but like, you know, you're going to have to kind of keep them in camp more than those two years and keep working on them. So if you keep that kind of constant inflow of, of, positive inputs then then at the end when they kind of get to get to adult order or whatever your you know sort of target is then then they'll have something that they can sustain on their own yeah I, that's true a, a lot of these programs only provide one or two or three years of interventions and or at least the ones we can measure can right because we measure that short that brief intervention right more, there have not been easily. there have been there have not been any experiments that randomize some children into 18 years of better schooling and other children into 18 years of worse schooling with like perfect follow-up in educational quality over all that time. The closest analog to that, which is pretty much that, but is a, in a different form, is the adoption literature. And I mm -hmm. cite one incredible paper by Bruce Sasserdote, this economist at Dartmouth, which really did randomly assign some children to families able to provide more opportunity than other families. And his findings are consistent with the idea that these early that childhood opportunities are very important for long-term career prospects. Um, but just to go back to your baseball analogy, what, what the findings show is that it, to, to make the analogy more correct, you'd say, okay, if we give kids two years of baseball training and then stop and they go back to whatever they were doing previously, what these findings are showing is that even if those kids don't appear to be better at baseball than, than other kids, you know, four or five years later, these kids still get some large benefit of those two early finite years of baseball training later in life. Maybe they're less likely to be obese. Maybe they have more high quality relationships, you know, who knows, but mm -hmm. I don't want to, the analogy would be very misleading if there were no long-term impact of those two years of baseball. Right. No, and that's a good point, right? So yeah, so maybe they're not a good baseball player anymore, but yeah, that's that's a great, a great. I think that does capture what you're saying from your study. That yeah, maybe they're less obese, maybe they're a little bit better at being a team player, um, or you know, other things which do get reinforced in the rest of your life, even if you stop, you know, doing doing the baseball or doing the specific, you know, um, intervention. Um, okay, let me get back to another one, which I know you address in your book, which I think is um, you know worth another issue that's worth raising is, uh, you know, is this just sort of blaming parents, right? You're saying, you know, are, aren't we good enough, right? Don't we, 
you know, shouldn't we just like be there for our kids? You want to, okay, you don't want to put them all in boarding school, but you're saying like they need more time with college educated professionals, um, you know, who are specialized in early or whatever level of childhood education and, and, and development um, and kind of uh, less time with their parents who, you know, in some sense aren't good enough. And especially if I really wanted to make it like sound as, as, uh, unattractive as possible as a proposition, like, oh, and especially, you know, those poor families, their parents, like, you know, you don't want them to be around that kind of person or something. It sounds really, uh, sounds, sounds kind of bad. So, so tell me why it's not that bad. Yeah. This has been a, a, a really, um, important thread that I've had to grapple with in how to get this message across to the public without alienating people. And I, I think we have to find a way to, to, to do it. It is not, if it's understood properly, it's not an insulting message. I think we need to reconceptualize. Well, okay. I talk about parenting as a combination of two jobs. One job is caring about children. And this is the area where parents are amazing. Parents are better at caring for their own unique children than any specialist, any professional third party. In most cases, parents really forge this bond and they use this bond to share love with their children, share laughter with their kids, share their their faith and their culture and the things that bring joy and meaning to their life from, you know, it might be things about food, cooking things that make you happy together. It might be sports. It might be art. It for, you know, I mentioned faith. That is just such a huge one for so many people bringing that religious community, that relationship with God, all that stuff parents are uniquely able to do. And I do not want to touch that. That is one of the most beautiful, sacred, fundamental parts of our society. Parents have this other job as well in our society, this other role, which is not caring, I call it skill building or child skill development. This role is not something that all parents can easily do on their own in their spare time on their own budget. Child skill development is more about clinical professional activities like management, navigating bureaucracy, motivation for complicated, psychologically complex creatures. It's about um, counseling. It's about navigating education and healthcare problems that most parents are not familiar with. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is make us reconceptualize this, ha- this part of parenting as something where to say that parents can't do it is not to accuse parents of failure. It is to recalibrate what our expectations of parents need to be. I want us to start to view the child skill development side of parenting more like we view flying an airplane or building a house. If I went up to you and said, yeah, Peter, you have three kids. And um, if you want to fly to New York tomorrow, I don't really think you should try to rent a plane and fly it yourself. I think you should just hire a professional pilot, buy plane tickets for your family, man. Don't, don't try to learn this skill yourself. You would not feel like I was accusing you of failure. You would feel like I was just being pragmatic. That's how I want us to think more about some of these more complex aspects of child skill development. Yeah. And I guess, you know, and even, even issues like, like, you know, with education, I mean, I think most of us acknowledge that, uh, well, maybe, maybe not when they're really little. I think that's, that's something where, where people might not realize how much there is to learn 
about doing it well. If you ask someone, you know, if you ask 90% or more of Americans, like, you know, do would you feel comfortable sitting down with your kid and walking them through the quadratic formula? You know, they're probably going to feel a little bit nervous because most of them don't use it in their work every day. And maybe they studied it, you know, at some point, but it's been a long time. And then if you say, you know, are you really good at teaching this? Like, you know, not just could you, but like, are you going to be able to do it, you know, in 10 minutes you spend on this, is there someone else who might be able to do that a little bit better during those 10 minutes? Then they'd probably acknowledge that. And I think it probably wouldn't be too much of a stretch to get people to say that, you know, there's also elements of like, you know, social emotional learning, like how to be, you know, deal with teen angst or, you know, three-year-old tantrums and stuff like that, that, or drug addiction you know, or, or drug addiction or yeah, a lot of worse things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, anorexia, um, mm -hmm. a, a large share of children experience pretty complicated um, behavioral and psychiatric issues at some point in childhood. And I, I, I think we should encourage parents to accept that they might not know how to deal with that as well as a professional and to help parents access those professionals and feel entitled and confident in that process. Yeah. And, and what's funny is, I guess, also, like, you know, again, the advantaged families, you know, they're in some respects more, you know, because they can afford it, and they're, or they may have better, you know, better insurance or whatever, they're probably more likely to reach out for, for professional help when they, um, you know, find that their child is, um, you know, having difficulties. Um, that, so it's not like, yeah, they're not, they're not, people aren't all just trying to go it alone. And I think it, just, it definitely, as you said, depends a lot on how they frame it. Um, let me, let me jump, um, in the, we just have a few minutes left. I want to jump to, um, another question, just sort of thinking about the, the general discourse. Um, so you, uh, present in your book that there's kind of a conventional wisdom among psychologists and, and child development people that kids are kind of fixed at birth and they have like some kind of IQ and they just, you know, and then we should just accept that and that you're presenting evidence that, actually, that's not true. And there's so much we can do. And, uh, you know, this is, and you're sort of, you're arguing that you're, you're fighting against this conventional wisdom, but like at the same time, like, you know, for instance, Catherine Page Harden, at, you know, psychologist at UT Austin is kind of coming at it from the other argument, you know, right now with her own book, you know, the same, same period saying, actually, we're, we're thinking, you know, her, her generalization or straw man, I think, and I haven't interviewed her, so I don't want to, you know, probably misrepresenting it slightly. It would be that, you know, uh, actually, you know, the liberal viewpoint is that every child, you know, starts with all the same capabilities and we should be able to, you know, if we don't see, you know, uh, yeah, if, if everyone, you know, that, that inequality must be about something that we didn't do for the kids and therefore, but that actually there, she would argue, it has argued that there's a very strong genetic component and that we need to also kind of accept that there's uh, this kind of baked in element. So, so how do I square, I think there's, so in a sense, you're inconsistent, I think in two ways. Um, uh, one is that, she, you know, you're, you're both arguing a different conventional wisdom, which is kind of opposites. And then also, uh, it sounds like you're both arguing that, you know, she's arguing that actually it's the other way and you're arguing that it's a different way. So, so talk me through this, help me think it through. Yeah. I want to start by acknowledging that doesn't sound like, um, it's singing high praises to the state of social science to have two people uh, premising their arguments on different, um, conventional wisdom and then reaching opposite conclusions. <laughs> um, I do think this is not a strong contradiction though. Um, I think she's referring to conventional wisdom in a straw man-y kind of way among 
left-leaning progressive folks who tend to assume that all differences are due to opportunity gaps rather than genetic gaps. And I'm referring to con- conventional wisdom, and again, in a little bit of a strong anyway, among some of the most prominent psychologists who study this, who, who speak publicly about these issues. So those are different samples to describe the conventional wisdom. And I think they're both reasonably accurate in their own way, those assessments. I think the evidence that I present is arguing that the income gaps that emerge between rich kids and poor kids when they reach adulthood, those are not due to genetic differences. I am arguing that we do, there are not large genetic gaps between rich kids and poor kids on average. I am not arguing that genes do not play a role in all kinds of other aspects of, of inequality. So I am sure that people that in general, there are genetic reasons why some people are excellent at math and reading and writing and logic and and art. I'm sure that plays into it. And I know there is a a very good evidence consistent with that. But in terms of class and race, which I think are the most disturbing, disruptive and inefficient kinds of inequality in our society, I think those based on the evidence that I present in the book are due to opportunity gaps, not genetic gaps. And I don't think that's necessarily inconsistent with um, this other view that you're describing. Yeah, I think um, I think she's been quite clear and careful, and especially on on the race side, and saying that that's that's not what she's talking about. She's looking purely at you know within within a given race. I think she would argue it differently, but um, the, in terms of like within within a given race, where you know that that part of the inequality comes from there. I think yeah, within a um, race, sure. Yeah, yeah, there are there are there are some kids within every racial group who are genetically more inclined to be excellent at math or, or reading or, yeah, or writing. And that may play out into social inequality. But I think, you know, the, the, sometimes it's, you know, when we get to the level of popular discourse, it's kind of, it gets this very either or sort of thing, which then also kind of leads to these straw man sorts of arguments sounding relevant. And I think that the key thing anyway, that I sort of, you know, take from, take from your research and the, the other research that you cite is, you know, even if there is uh some residual or even big genetic component that explains part of, you know, the, the inequality within our society. There's so much we could be doing to, uh, you know, compress the, the, the spectrum so that, um, you know, or, or bring up the lower end so that everyone, uh, so that these inequalities are much less extreme. Um, exactly. Here's how, here's how yeah. I think about it. If we, the, what the parent trap, this book, what I'm arguing is that we really can eliminate most of the inequality we see economically between rich kids and poor kids, that if we do feasible, realistic things to elevate the skill development opportunities that lower income kids receive, they will reach adulthood relatively equally prepared to contribute and thrive as higher income kids. If we got to that point, which we can do and which should be thrilling to anybody who wants a vibrant, efficient, society that is culturally rich and feels fair to people and makes sure people don't feel predestined to disadvantage early in life. If we get to that point, then we will have this other issue that some people get very genetically lucky and and they wind up having a lot of advantages. And how do we think about that? That's a different philosophical problem that we can address. Maybe for that, we might want other policy solutions. But first gosh, let's solve this huge problem that has been tearing our society apart since time immemorial and 
then we can think about these th- this variation in genetic luck. That sounds great to me. Let me let me ask one one the other the other question I think or other challenge that which I think you all did also raise in your uh, in your book is are you saying that uh, you know racism is not an issue except to the extent that it means that you know some you know uh, families some families have a hard time and that you know perpetuates over generations for the reasons you said right if you've if you come from a poor family you're less educated you're going to be in it up it'll be harder for you to help educate your kids. Um, and that'll perpetuate itself. So, you know, if certain races are at a bad starting point, that'll continue. But are you saying that like explicit racism itself is not um, a part of our social inequalities? Oh, absolutely not. I, I, I cite a lot of evidence documenting really creative, rigorous evidence, just documenting how deep a lot of racial um, attitudes remain, how much discrimination still exists, how it pervades many dimensions of uh, people's lives in the labor market, in educational contexts, in um, law enforcement and criminal justice. It's, it's really damaging. So I'm not arguing anything to conflict with that profound body of evidence. I'm arguing that if we equalize skill development opportunities in childhood, the benefits in terms of closing um, economic gaps between racial group groups are surprisingly large, even if society has a uh, quite a bit of prejudice remaining in many kinds of individual attitudes and institutions. The evidence that I present suggests that if minorities can reach adulthood graduating from the same kinds of colleges with the same kinds of degrees, the same kinds of academic training, the same kinds of early learning, social emotional development opportunities, if we can equalize all of that, it will close a large share of this racial inequality gap. And that once we close career gaps and income gaps, there's good evidence that wealth gaps will not close right away, but they will close perhaps surprisingly rapidly because income is such a huge determinant of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess in a sense, the the race challenge to your argument and the uh, genetics one are kind of related in the sense, or the answer is related in that, you know, genetics, obviously there's nothing we can do about, um, you know, unless we become eugenicists, which I think we're pretty much done with, fortunately, but um, the, you know, similarly like racial deep rooted conscious and unconscious racial biases are really hard to root out. And and that there's a lot of work needs to be done on that. But in the meantime, we can do very practical things like helping kids learn skills, which will put them in a better footing even even if uh, those those tougher biases remain in our society, that's right. That's right. And I don't think we should stop working on rooting out those biases and and um, right persistent yes. forms of discrimination. That's also very productive, important work for people to be doing. But what I would argue is we should not feel despair that no matter how much opportunity we give to minority children starting from birth. They're just going to hit the labor market and, and hit a wall because employers are too prejudiced to hire and appreciate hire them and appreciate and reward their skills. I don't think the evidence supports that level of pessimism. Great. So, um, so, all right, we're about out of time. So, let, what what are the um, so so? I think a big part of your book is about this this perspective of like we need to you know again not just fix the school environment but recognize that a lot of inequality comes from all this other time, you know, before they get to school and then what, you know, summers and evenings and, and, you know, bad sleep and all those other things that, um, make it harder for them to, to develop the skills that, 
would be rewarded uh, in the labor market and help them to advance themselves. Um, uh, so, so, and you looked at a lot, a lot of different sort of policy areas and studies, but like, what should, what should we as parents and voters be trying to do tomorrow? As individual parents, what I'm, what I'm arguing in the book is that we face limitations. We cannot, you know, if there's no freeway to a local job, we as parents can't build that freeway and Mm -hmm. we need to forgive ourselves for that. And we need to feel productive, righteous anger that our government has not provided that freeway. And we need to feel similarly as parents together, as a unified bipartisan team, we need to feel like productive, righteous anger that we are being asked to do impossible things to set our children up for success, especially if we are not highly affluent and highly educated, then we deserve the support of our public institutions to get our children started on the right foot in life. So I think parents need to feel that bipartisan kinship and not focus so much on our disagreements about exactly how to run our K-12 schools. You know, prayer and sex and race and gender, these are important things to discuss and they're valuable debates, but they shouldn't distract us from the fact that we all as parents need a good place to help our children learn from age zero to five. We all need a good place, a good, healthy, productive, enriching environment for our children after school, on weekends, if we have to be away or work on weekends, during summer breaks where we have no good solutions in many cases. And we all need access to the knowledge that helps us get our kids through college. Our college ecosystem is an insane labyrinth that is basically meant to deter opportunity among outsiders. And that should be an issue that outrages both liberals and conservatives. So parents need to vote. They need to come together. And if there is an opportunity to to join a bipartisan organization that advocates for these broader shared interests held among all parents, try to support those organizations right now. I think the ecosystem has a big gap that there are not enough of those organizations or it's too fragmented to really have one big organization like the AARP. But um, I hope that's not the buzzer. Kicking no, that, me was, that was my alarm for something. Enti- that was my alarm for, for that I need to go pick up a kid um, to take him to swimming lessons because I'm a middle-class parent. And that's the kind of things that, uh, that we do with our time and that we pay professionals to do. Um, so uh, an appropriate interruption that way. But I'm, I'm really sorry I interrupted your, uh, your, your points. Yeah, in on. terms of action plan, in terms of what parents can do today, I do think this looking out for opportunities for bipartisan political action is really important. And then in terms of just pure self-interest, yeah, all these opportunities, they do matter, unfortunately. Um, I wish I could relax as a parent because the evidence suggested they didn't matter, but they do. that's not what the evidence says. So we should be trying to give our kids more opportunity and trying to get more support from the government so that it's not this impossible, exhausting sprint that leaves so many parents feeling really tired and demoralized. All right. Well, that's, uh, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, so yeah, we as parents need to advocate for that. And also I think, uh, you know, you, you make this case in the, in the book, which I encourage everyone to, to read and think about. Um, but, you know, regardless of whether you're a parent or not, you know, if you want our society to be a more equal place and to, you know, fix some 
very long-standing problems, um, and also to be a more prosperous space, right? You you do mention this kind of you use kind of the economist way of talking about things. You're talking about efficiency and you know economic growth, and you mentioned uh, at one point that you know it's not just about like reducing inequality, but also you know every every kid who's better trained, better educated, um, more competent, more able to function in society is also a taxpayer, and they can you know we can we can tax them to buy good stuff for ourselves. So even if you're an old retired person, maybe you should be supporting education so that uh, they'll still be a taxpayer base that uh, pays for all the all the healthcare and everything else that uh, that you want um, want the public to provide you. Yeah, um, we're so, all shareholders in each other's children, man. That's what that's what we talk about. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, again, I'll repeat the name of the book. It's The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis by Nate Hilger. And uh, everyone should go out and get a copy.